one of the things I talk about in the book and talk about it with other entrepreneurs is the impact of hustle culture. So we are living in a linear world and yet we are cyclical beings, especially those of us who menstruate, but really everybody, you know, we're living with the seasons, with, you know, the exposure to light throughout the day, with these, you know, our circadian um, energetic rhythms, like, and, and we just don't listen to them. Like we are in, in override mode um, with our nervous systems and, and our minds. And, and it, it really, it's, it's hugely counterproductive. Like this hustle culture nature of the, you know, blow it up bigger, faster, more 24 um, seven, move fast and break things. Like all of this language that is so, um, kind of in dehumanized and and um, zero sum and binary and all these things like all of this has to work for human beings like yes we want solutions that work for the planet um, and we need to not kind of drive ourselves crazy or burn ourselves out in as we approach those you know those goals this is the podcast creative at the wheel and i'm julie claire as a transformational life coach and creativity guide, my life's work is helping people reshape their lives from the inside out. Here, I have deep dive conversations with luminaries who share about their own transformational journeys and how they became soul sourced and creatively juiced. May their stories uplift and embolden all of us. Let's jump in. My guest today is Madeline Shaw. Madeline is a multi- award-winning social entrepreneur and author based on unceded coast Salish territory near Vancouver, um, British Columbia. She's best known as the co-founder of Isle, formerly Lunapads, one of the first groundbreaking ventures in the world to commercialize reusable menstrual products, today a thriving industry. In 2014, she founded G-Day, a national event series for tween girls and their supporters. And in 2017, she launched Nestworks, a family-friendly co-working community. In her first book, The Greater Good, a social entrepreneurship for everyday people who want to change the world, she offers encouraging tips and reflections for aspiring impact-based entrepreneurs. And I have to tell you, when I first heard Madeline speak about it, what it can look like to become a social entrepreneur and how she looks at cycles um, and biomimicry and collaboration, um, I knew I wanted to interview her. So I'm very excited to have her here. Welcome in Madeline. Thank you, Julie. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited and really um, honored to be connecting with you. Me too. I, I so enjoyed when we first connected and I wanted to start jumping in with, if you could give us your hit on what it is to be an entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur. So we're on the same page with you. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, yeah, thanks for that. So let's start with the word entrepreneur, which is um, derived from a French verb that simply means to undertake. So you know, you're, you are starting something, you are creating something, um, you are diving in and uh, making something that was not there before. And, you know, a lot of people get caught up in whether entrepreneurs are for profit or nonprofit or whether it's scalable or whatever. And I kind of chuck all of that out the window in, in the book, mine seeking to, and I genuinely believe that entrepreneurship um, should be seen from a much more expansive um 
perspective and putting sort of limits like that on it is not helpful because it, it um, stops more people from finding themselves and identifying as entrepreneurs. And in my opinion, we need way, 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 way more of us. Um, and the social part um, is sort of shorthand for social or environmental impact. So impact would be another way of putting it, but the term social entrepreneurs just become more kind of popular, I guess. And so basically when you put those two things together, somebody is creating something it can be, you know, as simple as a community-based project um, or like a full-on multinational for-profit corporation, as long as it has um, impact at its heart as the primary driver behind why whatever it is is being undertaken, is being undertaken. And can I ask you, how far along the way, this book, it's a great book. I definitely think anyone interested in this needs to read it, The Greater Good. Um, social entrepreneurship for everyday people who want to change the world. Um, Matt Manlin, what, what got you so interested in helping others do it? We're going to talk about what you have done, but what is it that you're seeing out there now that wants, that sees the possibility and wants to reframe what it is to be a social entrepreneur and expanding it to include such a, just such a more open field when you speak of it? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so it's a few things. So there's, um, to me, like a sort of a gaping chasm between what I read in a newspaper or a business magazine um, and the faces and the names, and I will not name them, um, but of, of who is sort of held up as a paragon of successful entrepreneurship in our culture. Um, and these individuals tend to belong to a very narrow um, kind of social group and are also pursuing ventures that are just huge, just epically massive, that are audacious and disruptive and, and a lot of, you know, kind of language around that type of thing. Um, and we see these dramas on TV like Dragon's Den and Shark Tank in the United States and um, where there's this, you know, it's all about scale and, and being brash and all these audacious and stuff. So that's what, um, I feel like we see in the kind of popular imagination. But what I've seen in my almost 30 years as a living, breathing, do it every day social entrepreneur um, are people who are diverse and people who not only are, are physically diverse um, in terms of, you know, race and age and uh, gender and sexuality and, you know, all these different things, um, but they're also pursuing ventures that aren't necessarily, you know, all about disrupting anything. They're about healing things and, re, you know, regenerating things and um, making the world a better place in some way. So, um, so I wrote the book to kind of reconcile, like, what I see is my reality um, that is very real, which is, you know, literally uh, thousands of people at this point in my career that I have met or interacted with who are all in their own way pursuing a vision for social change. And, you know, yes, they want those enterprises or those projects to be successful, but the, the rationale for doing it comes from a very personal, very values-based place, as opposed to, um, you know, creating a best-selling app or taking over a certain, you know, market segment or achieving, you know, this, this ballyhooed unicorn status of a billion-dollar valuation. Like, these things are not meaningful to social entrepreneurs. Social entrepreneurs are coming from a different place. And 
I decided to write the book when I did, which was right as COVID was hitting, um, because I just sensed an opportunity uh, for people like we're we are at a time in history that we're under pretty desperate circumstances and and we're in desperate need of new ideas and social innovation and um, healing, you know, everything from social justice to climate change. And so to me, by centering folks who have been left out of this um, popular paradigm by including them and inviting them and supporting them um, to bring their ideas and their experiences forward, um, there's an ability to kind of scale laterally is how I would see it. Like this isn't about, you know, a small group of enterprises getting really big. It's about more people seeing themselves as um, entrepreneurs and taking steps within their own lives and their own communities to make change. How do you, how do you see it um, affecting people this way of, I, I obviously love this approach um, to uh, bringing people into this path and not, and, and, and what it might look like on the ground with real people doing real things. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and a wide variety of ways. What, what do you, what are you noticing as you're talking and sharing this? What do you see happening? How do you see this happening? People kind of going out and starting uh, from this deeply personal, but values-based place um, laterally. I mean, how, how are you seeing this happening? Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, it's it's about stories, um, Julie, and, and hearing one another's stories and um, building relationships. Like, I think, again, the entrepreneurial um, construct has been very individualistic. And so people are seen as the lone visionary and, you know, they're off to whatever, disrupt something. And what I see are folks building communities to get resources and support for their ideas and so it's a different kind of leadership it's much more collective um it's much more community-based um and seen as um as opposed to an you know a an individual act of leadership like yes that in and of itself is extremely important and and that, and that raises another thing that i see a lot of which is folks just needing to shift their self-definition and their identity like it was hard for me to become an entrepreneur like I my background is as a feminist activist and an artist so for a long time the idea of of being an entrepreneur I associated it with business and, and a for-profit kind of idea um, and which from a values perspective I saw very much at odds with my feminist politics like I just couldn't relate to it you know because I didn't really understand it and um which made it hard for me to see myself there and so that that's what I'm trying to change so a lot of people come to me and they say hey um you know I'd really like to start some kind of an, an initiative or a venture but I'm just a and just I with emphasis there fell in the blank I'm just a marine biologist or a parent or a teacher or, you know, a marketing executive or like whatever, any gardener, like you fill it like anything, any range of occupation or self-identification or whatever, they do not see themselves there. They're like, I'm just a this. And um, so I'm here to take away the just and bring in an and. <laughs> um, 
to encourage them to leverage those skills, to not see them as mutually exclusive. It's like, no, actually we need your experience as a marine biologist and a parent and an artist and a gardener to bring to bear on addressing social challenges um, and environmental challenges that are, are vital and need to be solved collectively. So it's, I'm seeing a very different attitude towards um, entrepreneurship emerging that more people are able to identify with and therefore are getting involved. I can hear it. And what can you, what was, how did you get into this? I hear that you were uh, um, into feminist, we still are feminist politics, uh, not thinking about business, entrepreneurship, but then came Lunapads, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. So my feminist politics sort of started developing as a university student. So at that point, you know, I wasn't really thinking in terms of a career. I was more just in like trying right. to survive in right. school and, you know, whatever and do my thing. And, but it was an important experience because um, it taught me about leadership and the idea that you need to, and there's a chapter in the book, as you know, called picking up the sword. And um and what I mean by that is like often leadership is expressed in terms of resistance to oppression. And that's what it was for me. It was really reacting against something that wasn't working for me that I felt was unjust um, and even illegal uh, and just generally something that I wanted to change. And I came to understand that if I wanted it to be different, I needed to do something about it because it wasn't going to fix itself and nobody, you know, patriarchy is not going to sit back and go, Oh, sorry, ma'am. You know, <laughs> let's make That's that right. better for you. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's the same thing with capitalism, right? Like, and, and colonialism and, you know, these things are not going to fix themselves. And so it was kind of a rock hard place situation for me, just kind of looking at it and going, you know what, if I'm just going to sit back and go, Oh, I don't want to be involved with those, you know, money grubbing capitalists, and I'm going to go and, you know, whatever, do something that I'm going to not do the thing that I want to do, which is to push back against this in some form, way, shape or form, um, and to offer and try and create an alternative. Um, so it was sort of came that way. But also, the, with entrepreneurship, there's an independence to it. Like, I, I never saw myself as being able to work within, let's say, you know, a corporate environment or um, public leadership or something like that to create change. Like I knew that I was probably going to be more successful for me or survive better outside of that. Mm -hmm. And entrepreneurship seemed to um, offer that kind of independence, but also realistically, you know, by the time I got to my early mid twenties, I needed to find a career. Like I needed, you know, yes, I had had jobs. Um, to support myself financially, but I needed to really commit to something that was going to, you know, where there was a plan as opposed to going from job to job and then going traveling for a while and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, um, and then finally, like I, I created some products, um, these Luna pads as they were then known, uh, washable pads and period underwear in the early nineties in response to, some health uh, issues I was having with disposable products. So I was having allergic reactions to disposable um, pads and tampons that I was using to manage my period. Uh, and doing that, like it just kind of flipped a switch for me. Like I really, I honestly, from the bottom of my heart thought when I made them originally that I was just solving for my own needs. I wasn't really thinking about anybody else because the culture at that point in the early nineties was menstrophobic. I would even say like people really 
want to hear about the freaky things I was doing with my menstrual pads. Like it was really seen as just absolutely taboo and kind of disgusting to a lot of people. But when I did it, when I started washing the pads and the underwear, it just completely like pulled back the veil in terms of my consciousness around menstrual health in such a like a radically positive way that so aligned with my feminist politics I was like oh I like I need to make this available to other people because it just feels so good and um so starting a commercial venture to manufacture and distribute the products was really the only way that was available for me to do that. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to co-opt the rules of business to serve this social change agenda of trying to make this experience of kind of like bodily liberation available to other folks who menstruate. And that's, you know, what I love about that hearing that is because that's the way things have happened for me is that it begins very personal. I'm doing it just for myself. So when I hear this values-driven, mission-driven, I always kind of shrink a little because I I always think to myself, yeah, but mine always starts because I just want to do something or I have a need and I decided to, you know, just do that. And then I decide to share it. And then I go, wait a minute, I'd love to do this with more people. So I, I like that story because even you, right? That's how that the very first business started was very personal was a response. And then you didn't know it was going to become a business when you first did that. No, no. And it was very much. And a a lot of people, I think I try and be super clear when I talk about that, like that people understand that, um, like we're basically using, it's a, it's a social, it's an eco-feminist, um, agenda that is using the tools of entrepreneurship to express itself. It was not a venture first. And then we're like, Oh, gonna give back or gonna whatever. Like it's, it take it took the shape it did because that was the most efficient and elegant way to spread this idea and this feeling at scale. I think your book actually goes into this really well about really starting personal. I, oh I, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And the soul traits I was thinking, anyways, you go ahead. No, I just, I think it, that's where to me, it really, well, it is such a gift. I think anybody could read this and start going, you know what, there is something I've always wanted to do and I might just want to have it be a project. Or you know what? There is something. What what if I investigated doing that? That was that it, but it didn't look like a regular business because I don't really want a business. But it could be actually blah blah blah. I think you get when I'm reading it, my mind gets stimulated at all the different ways and different things I'm interested in. And it's not just uh, how to make a business, you know, that that helps the world. There's a very generative quality of reimagining what that, how that could happen, or what what it might look like. And it doesn't always have to be business. But it can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's another thing I try and demystify is that for some reason, I think we've internalized the idea that there's a binary for profit and non not for profit, you know, um, ideology. And although those, you know, there are legal containers that speak to those, there's also other options. But the what's layered into that is the feeling that if you're in the for-profit world, um, you're not interested in values and social impact and whatever. And if you, and conversely, if you're in the nonprofit world, that's all you're interested in. So that's the only option for you to create changes. You better start a charity or a nonprofit. And, and I really dispute that. Like, I think a lot of sort of these binary, um, mutually exclusive ideas aren't helpful. And I'm in, I'm in it to kind of muddy this all up in a really big way, because I think that, 
you know, values absolutely need to be of a primary. Um, and in fact, many businesses are the primary driver for why they exist and why somebody created something. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in kind of um, messing around with all of that and certainly dismantling or unpacking that, um, that false belief system. I, I really get a feel for that in the book and I, and when you speak. And one of the things I love, and I'd love to draw us over to how you look at cycles of life and business and biomimicry and nature, that how you're inspired or how, how you're receiving, how you're bringing that into this world. Um, because um, I, I get empowered reading it uh, to collaborate in different ways. And oh. yeah, the, and there is this sense of, um, not because I'm a good person, but because it sounds so much more fluid and doable and exciting to me. Like when I read that, there, there, you, I think you, your, your way of talking about collaboration feels very different. There's a lot more fire in it. it it's not just, um, you know, being nice. It's, it's, it's a real powerful option. So what can, what can you tell us about, uh, you know, these ideas that get you going and spur you on now, because Luna Pads was how long ago when you first started that it was decades now, right? Yeah, in 1993. So it is decades at this point. And, and I guess, so I, I love this question. And there's so many facets to this, like, yep. it, it's big time. So I guess I would start by saying, I mean, and yes, I am a, a period geek and so on. And I'm also a gardener. And so those things really much, you know, in, inform my enthusiasm for cycles but even even as a girl um i was fascinated like when somebody told me for the first time that the length of the average human menstrual cycle and the uh, and lunar cycles were the same number of days i was just like you could have scraped me off the floor like i wrapping my mind around that was so big and i was I have like, to interrupt you do you really remember hearing that first time in the impact that's a yeah god love that I was fascinated. Well, and in fact, in that moment or that fascination has informed so much of what I've done and my work and, you know, the ventures themselves. But um, one of the things I talk about in the book and talk about it with other entrepreneurs is the impact of hustle culture. So we are living in a linear world and yet we are cyclical beings, especially those of us who menstruate, but really everybody, you know, we're living with the seasons with, you know, the exposure to light throughout the day with these, you know, our circadian um, energetic rhythms, like, and, and we just don't listen to them. Like we are in, in override mode um, with our nervous systems and, and our minds. And, and it, it really, it's, it's hugely counterproductive, like this hustle culture nature of the, you know, blow it up bigger, faster, more 24 seven, um, move fast and break things like all of this language that is so, um, kind of in dehumanized and, and, um, zero sum and binary and all these things. And I really want people to you know, like all of this has to work for human beings. Like, yes, we want solutions that work for the planet. Um, and we need to not kind of drive ourselves crazy or burn ourselves out in as we approach those, you know, those goals, right? Like we don't want to just be feeding great green products or socially impactful services or whatever through the standard kind of meat grinder machine that we've programmed like this kind of colonized belief that you know everything needs to be 
owned and and we need to do it as quickly as possible even the notion of scale and which is something as you know i discuss at length in the book like um even in the social venture world we're still quote looking for scale right and when we say that what we mean is infinite exponential growth and when i look at nature um, and this is celebrated widely across the business world. And this, it is. I've run into it even in my own business. I've had people say, well, we have to make sure this can scale. Right. And that's yeah. an article of faith. And nobody's, nobody's questioning that. Nobody's going, huh, why? And when, what, why is that necessarily a good thing? And so there's some people who I'm following right now who I'm going to give you as examples and that your listeners, if they're not aware of, might be interested in learning about their work. So Kate Reworth is a British economist um, who talks about um, natural patterns of growth. So in trees and humans and fish and animals and everything grows not in that way, not in this kind of hockey stick, um, infinite up into the right sort of pattern. Like what happens is we grow quite quickly when we're young, when we're children, but then we kind of level off. Like you know, ask yourself, when was the last time you got taller? Right? Like, <laughs> you didn't, you're not. That happened, that ended a long time ago. Um, but we, we have this kind of leveling off period that she calls thriving. And in the case of trees, that basically looks like producing oxygen and, you know, habitat for wildlife. And, you know, you're just kind of hanging out, right? And meanwhile, trees, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Anyways, so she suggests that organizations should would be healthier for everyone involved if we were more concerned with thriving as opposed to growing all the time and increasing everything all the time. Um, and then of course, trees drop seeds, they reproduce, right? They, they seek to, and then seek to support the other um, entities, the seedlings and so on. Um, now, another person I'm following, because this leads into as a segue into her work, is Dr. Suzanne Smart, who's a forestry professor at the University of British Columbia, who's written a brilliant book called Finding the Mother Tree. And what her argument is, and she's proved this scientifically, so the paradigm until now about our understanding of trees in forests is that they're competing with one another for light and uh, for nutrients and for water, and that's why they grow because they're they're kind of pushing against each other, and that's how uh, you know that's how and why they grow. And what Dr. Samard has discovered that in fact, they're that's not what's happening. Like they are they are supporting one another. They are literally feeding one another information and water and nutrients and doing this as a collective ecosystem. And that mother trees are really important because they are the sort of oldest, biggest trees, and they're the ones that can kind of bring everybody else along. And when I think about this, um, I think of aisle slash lunipads as a mother tree, actually, because we have, rather than just being committed to our own growth, we've actually, you know, created a movement, um, have supported the startup of numerous other businesses, um, you know, other colleagues that traditionally would have been framed as competitors and um, that type of thing. And just kind of been this entity that has fed a movement. And that's really been our purpose rather than scale. So, and finally, as a note about growth and scale, so, and back to our hockey stick, um, Kate Rayworth points out that the only organism that has that 
growth pattern as a naturally occurring thing is cancer. So there is no, there is no tree, there is no animal, there is no human that, that grows infinitely um, in perpetuity. It just, it simply doesn't exist. So um, I think we need to really radically rethink our whole, you know, this worship of scale and definition of scale um, to be far more diverse. There's even a wonderful um, Dr. Melanie Ryback. Um, she's based in Amsterdam and she has something called post-growth entrepreneurship. Uh, and she's a brilliant thinker and she's basically, you know, designing organizations to thrive, not to scale. And it's, it's great. So all of this is happening around us. And, and these are the ideas and the leaders and that I am the most interested in. And I find I, them very exciting. I, I want, before we keep going in that direction, uh, I want to ask you to dispel any notion there that thriving, um, well, that thriving, if, if it's not about constant growth, I love, yeah, absolutely. It can also mean being financially viable. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent. And and like, I guess I'd like to be clear that you know, if there's an, an entity, an organization that is making positive social change or environmental change, like there's no reason not to scale that. In fact, you know, assuming that this the impact is successful and so on, um, then scale away, my dears. Like, absolutely fantastic. But what I am arguing against is just sort of scale for scale's sake. And also for scale being defined in this very narrow way, which means um, usually top line financial growth is typically what it means. So it's not factoring in any other form of um, of impact. It's not doing that. And so uh, I think I'm seeing a broadening of the notion of scale and and kind of dethroning it as as a primary um, driver and uh, metric for success. I think that is happening. I think your book is going to help that. I think your voice helps that. And you see, so yeah, scale, scale away, but right. Um, what does that even mean? Like what are the, what's actually going on behind the scenes there? How are we taking care of business as we do that and people and, uh, the impact that we want to have, but it also a thriving business that is more like it's humming along. It's staying at this level. Say, say aisle right now. It's, I just want to put this out there. It's still making money, right? I just want to put that thriving doesn't mean we're just doing this to be good and we're not going to scale and become big. No, it just means that we're not necessarily going to grow exponentially continually. Right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, an aisle has had its ups and downs, um, mm -hmm. financially, um, certainly. And, you know, just, that's life and that's that small business and you know right now we've got some like everybody else massive supply chain issues and you know those types of things that we we struggle with like um anyone who's an entrepreneur can tell you like you don't just sort of figure it out and then you're good like there's this ongoing practice of uh, you know whether it's tweaking your business model or finding you know the right people to help you out or whatever your team um, your strategy, your product, your supply chain, like all of it is just so um, complex. So I sort of see thriving as a state where you are, um, yes, you are financially self-sufficient, ideally, or even, I wouldn't even say self-sufficient. I would say that you are able to manage your financial reality mm -hmm. while, and, and have some kind of resilience um, within that. 
while delivering a you know quality product or service to your community for good value and doing you know in a good way right so in a way that is you know environmentally sustainable and socially just and you know you're not using you know any form of weird labor exploitation or whatever there are no externalities um or those externalities are minimized and taken into account and taken responsibility for it. And it doesn't have to be fancy. Like it can even just be you. It can just be you and your practice and what you're doing and, and doing it in this good way that supports your well-being, your community's well-being, um, and is performing a service that has value for others. Absolutely. And the word I've heard you use before is regenerative. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about that. And and again, this biomimicry looking at, um, so it's not just a, a nice idea about how trees are doing, but really giving us an example of, of how life unfolds around us. Yeah. It goes back right. to the cyclical thing that you pointed to yeah. earlier, I think. And, and this idea that the tree is not in it to, you know, get as much, um, water as it can or whatever like it's in it to its purpose is to generate life and support life and in in doing so you know and that means birds and that means more trees and that means you know other forms of you know mushrooms and fungi and um a ton of stuff and giving us also just you know collectively oxygen um so that we can all breathe and so i think you know a lot of these ideas um are coming out when people are talking about the cir circular economy, um, which is really kind of a cyclical economy, if you think about it, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. about a literal circle, it's about a cycle. It's about designing products and services, um, especially products with the end of life in mind. How will this be recycled? How, you know, how does that change things? And shifting from an extractive mindset um, that's again, this linear, like, I'm going to take this thing, I'm going to produce it and then I'm going to consume it. And then the waste just gets thrown away and we're good, you know? And it's like, we are not good. We're nowhere close to being good. And so, um, I think we need to really pay close attention to biomimicry because those are the solutions. Like nature has a perfect way of, dealing with you know when a tree's you know life is over how it regenerates how it you know nourishes the nutrients of it going to the rest of the forest and um there are countless examples of that like in in nature nothing is wasted so how can we incorporate that wisdom and work with that wisdom as we seek to build organizations and initiatives absolutely and how Speak to that quality right there and creativity, that process oh. of, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I mean, see you as a very creative person. We have to talk about your other ventures that you're going with here now and have since, you know, over the last many years. But what is it that, how does this also support, you know, one thing that humans have is this in, in essence, well, an incessant need or desire to make things, um, to create new ways of doing things, to problem solve with new ideas. 
How do yeah. you see how do you see all of this potential for social entrepreneurship meeting the creative needs of people too? I think they're the same. Um, in a way, it's like there's a wonderful ingenuity to it. Like there's a social entrepreneur um, I was on a panel with yesterday. This is a wonderful example of what he's done. Um, his name is Samir Lakani, and he has a venture um, called the Eco Soap Bank. And what he does is he um, has created a program. It's in multiple global South nations where soap, you know, those little bars of soap in hotel rooms mm -hmm. in high, you know, nice-ish hotel rooms. Um, you know, maybe you just use it during your stay or maybe even only for one day um, before, you know, somebody comes and cleans your room and takes it and throws it away. Right. And because right. that's perceived as hygienic or whatever. Right. And anyways, he had an insight um, when he was traveling northern Cambodia and he, you know, there were families washing their children with laundry soap in the river, which is highly corrosive and unsafe. So they didn't have, you know, safe body soap to use to wash their children or themselves. And as a result, hand washing was not happening frequently and that type of thing. Anyways, um, he basically took the insight from, you know, he went back to his hotel and sure enough, there was a brand new bar of soap there that, you know, the a house cleaner had put in there and um and he was like wait where did that soap go like i literally just saw people today who could use that and so he created a program where there's they're up upcycling you know the used soap they take it and they re-render it and make it into new bars and then have women go and sell it you know in villages very inexpensively so that people have this basic safe hygiene um, practice and allows women to make money and it's all being done out of waste um, or what would have otherwise been waste. And we have a similar program um, called Transformation Textiles that we work with in the global south where um, fabric waste from large scale like t-shirt production like if you think about it, when they're making those products, there's a lot of waste fabric, right? Like in the neck holes and the armholes and stuff like those negative spaces of the fabric. And what we did is created a system and one of our colleagues where small pieces patterns are put into those negative waste spaces to make washable menstrual pads and period underwear. And so you're taking something that would otherwise be waste. Somebody's just thrown it away. But if you can put some thought into the initial part of it and go, oh, wow, there's room on this marker for little bits that could be part of this bikini or part of this pad, right? Like menstrual pads are the size of your hand, right? Um, then there's genius in it because you're, you're upcycling something and you're just thinking about it differently and putting it to a different use. And so that alone, like both of those are great examples of highly creative entrepreneurial initiatives where you just need to be thinking about more than um, how many bars of soap can I sell to the hotels or, you know, <laughs> how many t-shirts can I make out of this fabric? It's like, you need to have what I call the greater good in mind in order to have those insights to make those changes with things that are already existing. Like nothing new needs to be invented. It's just about how you think about it and then what you choose to do with it and how you define success. And let's ask the spiritual question. How does this affect you spiritually, energetically, as you walk uh, through nature, um, you know, being inspired by nature in these cycles and really being called to being, uh, we say relational, I love that word, um, mm -hmm. to these, these cycles uh, and participating on the earth in a way and, and also being ambitious, like letting these ideas go all the way through. What's it like for you as a person? How is this, how does, how does it give back? 
Oh, thanks. And uh, no, I love that question. And for me, it just feels very like there's a sense of alignment. And especially, you know, Julie, and maybe you'll relate to this too. Um, so I'm, I'm menopausal now. I haven't, right. you know, been menstruating for a while. And, and, but that's part of, I think, what gave me the energy to write the book is I really do feel like I'm moving into a phase of my life where this phase of my cycle in my life cycle is to teach and is to encourage and nourish and um, give back, as you put it, uh, to others. So it isn't so much, it isn't really about my own success, quote unquote, or anything like that. It's about encouraging and inspiring and teaching and like passing on the way the tree is dropping the seeds, you know, in the example that I talked about of Kate Rayworth's, um, I'm dropping seeds is what I'm doing right now. And, and that just feels aligned and right and gentle and, um, and kind of perfect, like perfect, like just take, take whatever I've got, like, just take it, use it, let's go. And, um, and in that way, I feel just more aligned with, with my life's purpose. Absolutely. And how do you deal? Because here we are living in a pretty darn toxic world in a lot of ways. Um, how do you deal with the soft doubt and all that comes up that appear as uh, these roadblocks? Uh, you, you spoke some to that in the book, but I would just love to hear you speak of that. Um, yeah, it's yeah. so hard. It's so yeah. hard. It's so hard. And I, and this is part of, you know, speaks to the everyday people that is part of the title. Yes. <laughs> so every day, just to backtrack a little bit on that, um, is code for anyone who is not cis, white, pet, male with an app in trying to raise millions of dollars in Silicon Valley. So <laughs> the rest of us who are not that. Um, and many of those profiles of people. So when I say that I'm speaking of women and non-binary trans people, people of color, indigenous people, et cetera, folks of diverse ability and age, um, we're kind of used to being told that, you know, we don't belong or that our ideas are too small or we don't have the right education or the right skills or blah, blah, blah. And to succeed in power structures that were not created by or for us. Um, and so I think it's natural, like when we are stepping into leadership, and this goes back to the I'm just a, you know, X, Y, Z, I'm just mm -hmm. a teacher, just an artist, um, where we sort of minimize, um, because the world has told us that we are minimal, and that our ideas kind of don't belong or don't matter and so on. And so when we resist that, when we pick up the sword, as I, I call it in the book, um, that's a really important act of resistance. And when we resist something, you better believe that we're going to get resisted back. You know, there will be a bit of a blowback um, energetically uh, in, in one way or another. So um, I forget where I was going with this. Um, everyday oh, well, just people... how, how do we deal with these obstacles or self-doubt oh. as it shows up? But I love that you spoke to the everyday people because that's crucial to your message and, and your work. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but even like, you know, we teach what we need to learn. Like I, I write about this in the book and about, I mean, self-doubt has just been absolutely brutal for me. Like I still, I have a story that I'm not a quote unquote real business person. Um, that I do not deserve to be taking up space, um, especially when, you know, you factor in social privilege and that type of thing. That's like, yep, yep, that, all of that is true. And I have something to say that I believe is valuable. And, and um, but I'm still, I'm still in it. Even the day of the book launch, 
I was so gripped by self-doubt that I I just couldn't, I practically couldn't function. And so what I did was I reached out to a friend, um, a wonderful woman who actually, she appears in the book um, called Vanessa Richards, who's a very close friend of mine and, and just kind of let her know that I was struggling. And she phoned me within a few minutes and we, and we talked through it. And um, one of the pieces, is, well, there's two pieces of advice. One is call a friend, <laughs> like get someone to help you. You don't have to do this by yourself. This is a very natural human thing, especially for those of us who, you know, may not be holding a great degree of social privilege. Um, and so ask for help. And the advice though that she gave me was incredibly gentle. So rather than being the like smash that self-doubt or, you know, <laughs> chuck that fear out the window, like she was like, okay, what part of you is scared? What part of you is, is doing this? Like that, that's internal. Like how do we kind of calm down your parasympathetic nervous system? Like how do we, how do we do that? And, um, and part of it was like acknowledging, like going, okay, fear, um, you know, you're here, you're, you're on some level, you're trying to protect me. Um, but it's not helpful right now. And the way she phrased it was like, you know, thank you for your work or thank you for your concern. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can just kind of like pat it on the head and say, okay, you're not driving the bus. Like you are not running the show here. Like you, you showed up, we've heard you and, and, you know, and thank you. And just kind of, you can sort of sit somewhere else, but not, not in the driver's seat. And I found that really helpful. And also finally, um, I have a daughter 16 years old now, but she said, just how, how would you talk to Gigi about this? And, you know, when I thought about how I would, you know, speak to my daughter, if she was expressing this, this self-doubt, um, I would have a much gentler sort of tone to her as opposed to the, like, you're wrong. You know, we spend so much time feeling like we have something wrong with us, right? So then to be told that we have something wrong with us because we're doubting ourselves is not helpful, you know? Like, I think we just need to be very, so much more gentle through all of this. And that, I think, in turn feeds creativity and emotional intelligence and just other forms of knowing that I think we need to access, like intuition and like somatic knowing that are typically have no place in any form of venture creation. Um, and I, I feel like we need those insights, those places of gentleness to, to lead us into a place of innovation. Absolutely. And this, you know, this is the work I do with people. So I love hearing you speak about it, how it came up for you, even with the book lot, you know, one of these things with the book coming out is people are in front of a blank canvas in support of something else they're doing in their lives. And oh my God, the judgment and the critic and the takeover, and they want to run for their keys. I just see it. It's I've been there. That's why I do this work with people. Mm -hmm. I, I You just eloquently spoke us through that process. So thank you. Gosh. Because that is, uh, some people want to kill their critic or their inner judge or this, like, no, 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 no. This is a lifelong relationship. And you spoke to that. And I also want to out that you, I know you have said it in the book and you're saying it now that self-doubt has been a thing. So when people are listening to this, it's not that you're, oh, so ridiculously, disarmingly courageous, right? You just just launch it. Well, maybe you are courageous, but it's it's partly because you're also scared, right? There's also like, oh, what am I doing? So I just want to out that because you are really, this book really does ask us to say, hey, you can, you can do this. You can do it on a scale you want. You can do this in a way. So um, what would you say to people who don't think of themselves as courageous yet or ever? Um, just to take it in like 
really, really slowly. Like this can be, again, this castle culture, like we're supposed to fix it. Yeah. We're supposed to move forward. Blah, 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 blah. Like um, just to be in a place of gentleness with yourself. Like I would even, I even um, talk folks through a, a meditation exercise in the book about going back and revisiting their inner child. And, it, it, you know, the, the exercise is mostly there to help people access vision, but I think that it also has, um, can have the purpose of sort of drawing us forth in a, in a gentle way where we don't necessarily have to go, okay, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to be, you know, this journey, this, or this big leader, you know, going on this journey, even though I'm a big fan of that too. And I discuss that as well, archetypes, if those feel comfortable to people, um, but it, this process of becoming an entrepreneur, I do believe, demands personal transformation. And I know that that can be scary, but I believe that it's also really exciting and that to trust the part of yourself that is feeling pulled as opposed to pushed um, to create something. Because if something, once it starts inhabiting your mind and your heart and kind of tugging at you, um, that's really important. Like that's, and, and whether you see whether it requires courage in the sense of bravery um, or courage in the sense, like the word courage, as I, I hope most people know, um, it's from the French, French word um, that means heartful, literally. So we're, we're being led by our hearts when we are being courageous is really all that that means. And so I would encourage people to see it that way. And um and let themselves because what there are things that want us like these things are looking for us you know this isn't just you know we're not purely being the protagonist here like there's a dance that's going on with the world and other energies and parts of ourselves and and those types of things and just to trust that process and not necessarily judge it or go i need to be a certain way but just keep going with it and trust what's happening to you and in my language i i really feel like you're talking about the call of the earth and the greater spirits that are also part of this part of this cycle and part of the, these callings that we get through these these creative aha moments of what might be possible for us and being led by the heart you speak so much we're going to we're going to end it there we're going to direct people to obviously read and get your book it's 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 a beautiful book the greater good and it's going to be on the liner notes um, anything else you want to throw in there just a big gratitude to you, Julianne. I just love the work that you're doing, and it's an honor to connect um, with you. And yeah, I'd just love to hear from anybody listening. And um, just, yeah, very honored and grateful to be here today. Thank you. Well, that's today's podcast of Creative at the Wheel. Before we go, I want to invite you to check out my ongoing Friday gathering, online gathering, The Creative Cure where for 75 minutes each Friday, we follow our intuition and play with pen, paper, paint, whatever creative materials you have on hand as a way of coming back into alignment with life and the moment fully expressed. It's very healing and a whole lot of fun. You can also learn more about my one-on-one -on -one coaching on my website, paintbiglivebig.com.